This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 27th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Congress's budget process is broken. That's not exactly new information, but Congress won't have to address mounting debt for more than a year, so now may be a good time to strengthen the process for new spending. Cato's Romina Baccia details some ways to herd those congressional cats into the deliberative processes they're supposed to be doing anyway. There is a process that Congress is supposed to go through every time they approve spending plans, uh, a budget, if you will. How how often and maybe when was the last time Congress forthrightly went through that process? Congress barely, if ever, follows the budget process because there's a lot of fallback mechanisms. I do recall that in 2013, both the House and the Senate adopted budget resolutions. We haven't even seen any budget resolutions this year. And the only reason they did so in 2013 is because there was a a law that specified that if they didn't put forth a budget, they wouldn't get paid. So it demonstrates that incentives work, but without those, Congress is not likely to follow the budget process. And in part, it is because we're coming up on another election year, we seem to be in an election year just about every other year. And 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 putting forth a budget is one way that Congress can put concrete priorities on paper. Numbers don't lie. And so members of Congress like to avoid that because it creates accountability, it creates transparency, it creates something that others can hold members of Congress accountable for. So it's just easier to not follow the budget process than potentially face criticism for budgetary ideas that people might disagree with. The Republican Study Committee is sort of long reputed to be the budget hawks of Congress. What are they recommending for Congress to adopt? And and what do you think of those proposals? And if you don't mind, feel free to take them in turn. Yes. So the Republican Study Committee has followed a 30-year tradition of introducing an alternative budget proposal. So whether the Senate or House Budget Committee propose a budget or not, the Republican Study Committee has been very consistent in putting forth their members' priorities. And it makes up a very large group of Congress. It's about 175 members of the House that are part of this committee. And their budget... The budget they propose will balance if all of the policies were adopted. Now, in order to balance and avoid major cuts to Social Security and Medicare, which is a commitment that both parties made this year, that means really steep cuts in other areas. And it also means assuming a large amount of additional economic growth. But I think that it is really valuable for members of Congress to put forth a plan to have a goal like balancing the budget and then find out just what it would take to get there. If the Republican Study Committee plan were adopted, the budget would balance over the next seven years. This is a quite aggressive goal and includes a lot of policy proposals that would be politically not feasible, given that it would require bipartisan support, but still, I think, a worthwhile exercise to find out just what what it would take. In terms of reducing spending, you would have to reduce projected spending by about 10%. That is about $14 in this budget proposal. 
And after doing that, they proposed to adopt a balanced budget amendment or a similar statutory spending limit to maintain that budget balance. I would love to find myself at a time where we didn't just balance the budget, but also had rules in place to keep the budget balanced. Unfortunately, we seem to be extremely far from that because actually our current scenario is that debt will grow to new record heights that we've never seen in modern U.S. history, including exceeding the levels that we experienced in the United States immediately following World War II. And that is despite this new debt limit deal. So I commend the Republican Study Committee budget for putting forth a visionary plan for balancing the budget and suggesting to keep it balanced. The question is, how do we get members of Congress to actually adopt these proposals? How credible are statutory budget rules? Not very credible, unfortunately, because Congress uh, seems to not be committed to living within current taxpayers' means. It is just too easy to pass the buck to the next generation. And so when we have had fiscal rules in place, Congress has more likely found ways to circumvent them. And that propensity to circumvent even simple and modest rules has only increased over time. Two recent examples, the last major deficit reduction deal before this debt limit deal was the Budget Control Act, and Congress abided by it for about the first two years. And after that, they agreed to raise those spending limits, spend more, and also abuse certain loopholes, including for emergency spending that wasn't always really about dealing with emergencies, but just a convenient way to spend more money. And so the Budget Control Act didn't really work for very long, especially because one Congress cannot really bind another unless you have a constitutional balanced budget amendment. And then this most recent debt limit deal, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which again is a misnomer. Basically, when you hear a bill name, assume it does the opposite of what it says it does, unfortunately. And the Fiscal, Respon the F Fiscal Responsibility Act suggested to put in place new discretionary spending caps, but then also left open vast loopholes in order to abuse those. And we also found out since then that there have been side deals, agreements that the White House made with members of Congress to even circumvent the modest fiscal restraint adopted in this debt limit deal. So we're unlikely to see significant savings from that, which means that when Congress confronts the debt limit again, which likely won't happen until spring or summer 2025, because they conveniently pushed off the debt limit until after this next presidential election, we will be confronted with an even bigger fiscal challenge where it will require a lot more than $14 trillion to balance the budget. You know, I, I actually think we're at a period now where I don't know that it makes sense anymore to talk about balancing the budget, as, as, as sad as that sounds. I would, uh, I would be happy with members of Congress making a serious effort at stopping the additional growth in the debt, at least as a share of the, econ of the economy, so that uh, the burden of the debt becomes more manageable, that debt target would, would have been more modest, but still would have required about $8 trillion in spending cuts, or about half of what's in the Republican Study Committee plan. And even there, Congress failed when it came time to actually put those policies into place. So one thing I think to keep in mind is budgets are visionary documents. They do not become law. 
what does become law are things like debt limit deals and reconciliation bills, which is a particular process that it's a, a spin-off from a budget resolution. And maybe one way to fix this problem would be to make budgets actually binding and force Congress to confront the entire federal budget and actually pass an annual budget rather than allowing spending to continue on autopilot, which is where we find ourselves now. One of the proposals, Representative Michael Cloud of Texas has proposed including interest costs in CBO cost estimates of legislation, which is sort of galling in the sense that it's weird that CBO isn't already accounting for the costs of spending and the debt service that would be required for that additional spending. That's it's sort of to me, it sort of gives lie to the notion that CBO, which is just doing what Congress tells them to do, that CBO is giving us realistic numbers. Yeah, this seems really basic. And like it should be common sense that when Congress proposes new spending or changes to the tax code, that when CBO scores those estimates, that they would provide us with a full score that includes the effect on the debt. This is particularly important now that interest costs are actually the single largest, uh, the single fastest growing budget category because of the higher interest rates following the inflation and the Federal Reserve rate hikes, interest has become much more significant in terms of what the federal government spends. And to not include interest cost estimates seems, I, I completely agree with you, just like, duh, why, why aren't you doing that? And it is because Congress isn't asking CBO to do so. And I think it's because a lot of fiscal rules say, for example, if you're going to increase entitlement spending, there's a there's a, a, a rule on the books that says you have to pay for it. And if you fail to pay for it and it increases the deficit, then there will be automatic spending cuts to make up for that. This is called pay-go or in a similar rule that Republicans have adopted is called cut-go. That just basically means you can't pay for it with new taxes. You have to pay for it with other spending cuts. And so if, if CBO included interest costs in those estimates, and they also affected those rules, then much larger automatic spending cuts would be required. So ignoring interest costs and pretending like they don't exist makes Congress's job easier, makes it easier to pass legislation that is deficit financed. And I think that's, that's, that's the only reason why they don't, they don't account for it. You know, on a, from a more beneficial point of view, you might say, well, interest is not something Congress controls. It is dependent on interest rates and how the economy is going. And so maybe we should only consider the spending or tax impacts of legislation that Congress passes without including economic effects like interests that, that Congress doesn't directly control. But when you're financing such a huge chunk of government spending, about 20%, of government spending through raise, raising debt, and that has interest cost implications. If you add to that, that necessarily in increases the deficit. So you, you should account for interest costs. It's part of what 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 the implications are of these new laws that Congress wants to have. And so 
yeah, I think that should be a bipartisan and common sense proposal. So far, it's not. Is there any sense that even if the debt limit fight has been pushed off until 2025, is there a sense that there is a going to be a growing fight in the next year or two? There are a couple of fiscal deadlines. The next big one coming up is the end of the fiscal year in September. And there is already a fight brewing. Part of the fight will be holding on to the spending limits that Congress agreed to in this debt limit deal that would cap spending on defense and non-defense discretionary programs. Unfortunately, they make up less than one third of the budget and they've been declining as a share of the economy. So it won't fix the debt crisis, but I think it's, it's good to restrain spending on the bureaucracy and on programs that should be perhaps state or local or priorities for the private sector instead of the federal government. So it's valuable to have that, but that fight is unlikely to involve the larger drivers of our debt. I'm also concerned that Congress is already talking about additional emergency spending to support the ongoing efforts in Ukraine against Russia. And there's members that would like to tag, tack their own priorities onto such an emergency spending bill. There's already talk of increasing defense spending using the emergency spending loophole. So where I would like to see this September fight go is not just about the debt limit deal that Congress already agreed to, but also say, okay, if we actually want to honor the intent of those spending limits, we need to close obvious loopholes like emergency spending. Emergency spending does not get counted against spending limits that Congress agrees to. So it just creates the temptation to abuse it in order to spend more money outside of agreed upon caps. And that's what we've observed in Congress, so-called supplemental appropriations, where Congress adds additional spending to what it agreed to as a top-line limit. We've, we've seen about one additional trillion over the past five years. So this is a large and growing budget category to abuse emergency spending. And there's a really simple way to deal with this, to say this is not a free lunch. Emergency spending costs money, just like non-defense and defense domestic spending costs money. And so we should account for it and pay for it if we are going to use it to spend more than we agreed to in, in, in previous negotiations. So this is, I think Congress should account for and pay for emergency spending, and then we will reduce the incentives to abuse this in order to prop up spending in other areas that aren't particularly for emergencies. But even on, if it's a, if, if it's a real emergency, you still have to pay for it. Like that is part of what the federal government does. It adds to deficits, it adds to debt. So we shouldn't treat emergency spending as if it didn't count, it counts and we should pay for it. And that again to me seems like a really simple thing that Congress should do, but there's a there's a trend where they, they look for ways to get around spending li limits, get around fiscal restraint. Congress is primarily motivated to spend more, unfortunately. And by leaving these blatant loopholes open, like emergency spending, you're just going to see growing abuses, especially in light of new spending caps. So it kind of undermines the point of the spending caps if, if it's like, well, they don't really matter because we always have this loophole where we can just ignore them. 
Romina Baccia directs budget and entitlement policy at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 